Welcome to the Therapy Evolved Podcast, where we discuss integrating primitive virtues into the context of a modern world. Hello, everybody. I'm joined today by... Beth Pace, who's a Louisiana licensed professional counselor, uh, trained by my own University of New Orleans. That's right, I own it. It's all mine. Um, Beth is the Drug Court Clinical Services Supervisor, contracted with Court Intervention Services for Orleans Parish for the city of New Orleans. She is also my day job boss and an avid exerciser. But being my boss is not going to let me go easy on you today. Okay. Even though you have firing power. That, that works. So if you could start, uh, first off, thanks for joining us. It's oh, really sure. generous of you. I know you're super busy. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and what drew you to practicing an addiction? Sure. Um, I, my first social work job was working in housing case management, meaning that I was going into my clients' homes, um, visiting them, working with them on their housing-related goals, and so it was very case management, social work related, but what I was noticing was that untreated substance use or addiction was making everything else almost, I don't want to say impossible, but really difficult to, to treat and work on, and so that being, that being the need for like treatment, and so when it came time for me to do my internship at the University of New Orleans, where I got a great education, um, I had an opportunity to intern at a substance abuse treatment facility, and I took that because I thought at the time that treatment for that has got to come first before you can start um, trying to build anything on a really shaky foundation. Sure, yeah. Um, and I guess to what makes you such a great guest for this is sort of the whole mission of Therapy Evolved is to show people, listeners, how they might kind of adapt their body chemistry as well as their cognition to meet those primitive reward systems. Yeah. Right. And I know in counseling we have a lot of focus on cognitive rewiring. It's literally called talk therapy. And then, you know, one mission of this is to sort of address that sometimes you need to do some physical or, you know, uh, self-care type things to get the chemistry correct before talk therapy is going to have the best impact. Sure. Right. And so when, when you dealt with substance abuse, what would you say are some common misconceptions that the public still has? You will probably hear most of us who work in substance abuse say this. It's that it's a choice. Uh, the common misconception would be that this is a choice um, and that someone is choosing um, this misery, or I just read this quote that was like, choosing this petty hell sure. over, um, over the other great things in their life. And we know that the choice to engage in substance use, maybe at the beginning, we can call it choice, but once it becomes a compulsion or that obsessive thinking pattern, someone knows they want to stop and finds themselves incapable a lot of times when things have really progressed. And so it's really hard for someone who doesn't either have the experience um, or the the living laboratory, like it says on your sheet, or the personal experience of wanting to change something and feeling like you literally cannot do it. Sure. That's why we, as treatment clinicians, are trying to come from this place of compassion, uh, but also 
like the science versus a, a willpower thing. So we're right. trying to be compassionate, but also saying something's got to change in your brain chemistry. That's why you feel compelled to do something, even though you know that it's detrimental or deleterious to your life. Sure. And then, you know, even to say something's a choice, it makes it seem like people have either all the discipline reserves in, on the earth or zero at all, right? Right. You know, and then I think about whether you're trying to begin any kind of change of unhealthy patterns and addiction being especially powerful. And I know that you're also in private practice. How do you approach someone as far as their first steps of like, okay, um, you haven't taken the first step towards physical improvement or the first step towards quitting a substance, the, you know? Yeah, and so what we talk a lot about, um, and I can, I love to talk about, like I read this quote one time, or like Carl Jung said this thing, but when it comes to um, how I approach change from a theoretical orientation, there are two things, um, which is that I come from like a really humanistic, person-centered uh, counseling orientation, which basically means that the clients are the expert and they know what they want. Sure. And then we can fill in the blanks with behavioral strategies and um, treatment interventions to get them on the path that way, but they're the ones who tell me. So if they come in and say, I can't stop using meth, my first question is, do you want to? Sure. Um, and if they trust me enough to answer that question honestly, the answer might be, no, I just really want to stop feeling guilty about using it. Okay, well then let's start there versus sure. me thinking, well, but meth is so bad for you, and you're saying that these are all the negative consequences that are coming as a result of it. So the abstinence model for substance abuse counseling, again, I went back to saying, you know, clients who are really struggling um, to meet some of their, their life goals for housing, um, Maybe we've got to treat the addiction first, but if somebody's coming to me and saying, here's what I want to work on, sure. and they're not really in a system that, that mandates something different, then I ask them what they want to work on. So if a client comes to me and says, I'm not really ready to, to change this thing, we start there. So we call it in our field motivational interviewing, but sure. it's really just asking someone not what's wrong with you that you're not ready, but okay, talk to me about your ambivalence to change. What would letting go of this be like? Are you ready for that? And if there's trust and that kind of, the, the honest uh, sensation that someone really believes that you're the expert in your life, then they'll more honestly say, well, the reason I don't want to give it up is because it makes sex better for me and I'm so shy when I'm not using that I would never be able to, um, you know, I would never be able to access sex without meth, so I'm not going to give up the meth because I love the sex. Great, so that's where we start, rather sure. than me saying, okay, well, you've got to start using condoms and going to treatment and doing all these things I think would make your life better. Um, and how different is that from the typical medical prescriptive model of how things are usually approached? Well, I don't want anybody, any of your listeners to think, wow, this, this lady's just really going um, off the rails. If if someone is of danger to themselves or someone else, or I recognize that they need a higher level of care than I can offer to them in a private practice, or even in an, an intensive outpatient treatment facility, which is essentially what family service drug court is, then we refer them up. Like sure. it's not ethical for me to say, "Cool, I'm just going to sort of cowboy style do what I," you know. Of course. Well, and you know, at first glance, it may sound that way. And I realize I cut you off on my own. Okay. Sorry. 
But, you know, one thing I'm trying to get across with this podcast, too, is that these humanistic approaches absolutely have um, brain science backing. No question. You know? Yeah, and so when you said to me, where would I start with someone? But say someone comes to me and they say, okay, I'm, I'm struggling with a different type of addiction. They come and they say, okay, every time I get into a relationship, it is so amazing and I'm so happy and I know I found the love of my life and then it crashes and burns and then I can't set boundaries with this person because they make me feel so good so then you know we we get back into this merry-go-round and we're all tangled up again and then they hurt me and then it all starts all over and we would talk about that kind of in the language of love addiction too same brain chemistry same science that fills you with all those feel-good chemicals when this thing person, substance, whatever, is in your life and you're just lit up from the inside. I had a client tell me that it was like that scene in The Wizard of Oz where she goes from being in like the black and white kind of sepia tones into full glorious technicolor. That's how she felt around her um, her kind of qualifier, as it were. Sure. So then if we're talking about something where this person says, I'm miserable, I'm ready to change, Rather than going, great, here's all the skills, here's all the tools, um, we talk about what need is this person meeting in your life. Sure. Um, and that kind of goes back to the evolution of, or the, the evolutionary need for all those feel-good chemicals in the first place. You know, right. It's a survival mechanism to fall you know, in love and be very physically attracted to someone. It's a survival mechanism to enjoy the taste of food, Certainly. running away, we're, all that stuff. We're literally built for all of this stuff. Right, and then all of a sudden you've got all of that at your fingertips and you can access it when you want, whenever you want, as much as you want, and no one's really going to say, hang on a second. I mean, sure. until maybe the law steps in, right? Right. Well, we go from, you know, designing all these mechanisms in a human to go and seek out these scarce resources, be they partnership, be that, you know, be that right. partnership, food, whatever, shelter. And then it becomes gluttony when we have all the same drives and none of the difficulty and barriers in obtaining any of it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it really, it tickles me because there are some, maybe certain facets of the exercise and um, nutritional community, community, and we can maybe come back to this sure. next time, yeah. where it's like, okay, I want to return back to the old way of eating, of exercising, etc. Sure. Um, but even that really makes me laugh because if someone says, oh, you know, I'm paleo, and oh, what they no, mean is they're yeah. trying to eat things that are like a little more natural, whole foods, come from the ground, nothing processed. Um, but if they say that to you while they're eating a mango, and they live a place <laughs> right. that mangoes aren't in season, of you course. go, oh, really? Cool. Uh, because a, a truck or a plane yeah, brought that mango there. to them to sure. the grocery store. So even then when someone says, I'm trying to return back to the old, more natural way, we still mean, but at our own convenience and on our own time. And, you know, whenever I hear about, and even though I have a <laughs> podcast called Therapy Evolved, and I'm certainly going to attract people with that sort of interest, mm-hmm. there is an element of, like, yes, changing your diet is important, but nobody with any scientific significance is going to say, go back to catching cholera and being eaten by crocodiles. Or eating a whole antelope with everybody in your community sure. and then not eating anything for four days. Right. Well, oh, that's, you know, you must be a good hunter. Right, <laughs> you know? yeah. 
And it's interesting, too, because I've, I've had the pleasure of living with a tribe in southeast Ecuador for a little while. Did not know that. The Shuar. Uh, they were, we call them the headhunters, and you know, because they used to have that habit of decapitating fallen enemies. But um, we call things paleo, we call things primal, and it's definitely not that way. Sure. You know, sure. and they've got no problem eating bread or rice if they get a hold of it. They just—it's just not there every day. Right. You know. And so coming back to, yeah, we could we could talk about all of these things, and there would be like almost probably no direction to sure. uh, to the podcast today. But what I also talk about with um, with clients here at Drug Court or in my private practice is, and it's it's up there on my website too, which is sometimes it can be really soothing and calming to know that there are biological like impulses behind your behavior and your feelings um, so it's very normalizing uh, so not just this happens to other people but your body was made this way right you're not broken right you just work too well for where you're at right so those questions of you know what's the matter with me why can't I be like but then people fill in the blank with what they think is the right way to be a human mm-hmm. being, and that's based upon social media, television, um, conscious or unconscious like types of advertising, but also other people's judgment, sure. or what they perceive to be other people's judgment. So the other place that we start from the jump, and this, boy, talk about being a living laboratory, and what I mean by that is having to do some of that own work on myself as well, we start with this place of like self-compassion. Sure. Where are you right now, and is that okay? And the reason that that, again, you're saying, and I agree, that like the science backs these humanist um, or you know, even Buddhist principles of just like loving kindness, being patient with yourself in the process, or recognizing that suffering is a part of life, um, is that you can let go of all the tension around it. Um, or if you're engaging in like breathing exercises or meditation, it's a message to your brain and to your body, you're safe enough to calm down. Sure. Right? You, you're safe enough to breathe deeply, which means that you don't have to be as anxious as your brain is telling you, or a certain part of your brain sure. is telling you. Well, yeah, right and now. certainly. And you know, it's, we never naturally design these relaxed mechanisms because your environment took care of that for you. Mm-hmm. When I think the last anthropology research I read said that the typical primitive work day, and this held up to my limited experience in the Amazon, was that it was about three hours. You can only patch your huts and check your traps and hunt things in the river so often before you're just done for the day. Mm-hmm. And then you flip that to modern society, you're lucky if you have three hours to yourself in the 24. And as you say that, it makes me think, um, I spent two years as a volunteer teacher in the Republic of the Marshall Islands. Again, um, what worked as a subsistence economy for a really long time, climb coconut trees, um, fish in the ocean. Right, so same same mentality of like, there's only so much work you can do, especially during the hours. Oh, and um, the heated climate. Right, yeah. right. In the hours in which it's cool enough for you not to overheat, there's enough food for a certain amount of people on your island, and sure. then, man, nature kind of takes care of itself. Um, but then fast forward to 2010 or like 2008, 2009 when I was there, now boats come in for with rice and flour, but the same mentality around working for only three hours sure. and then not really doing much with the rest of your day. So the Marshallese word for that is kakije. Like, we're just going to kakije and like take a rest for the rest of the day. And I'm like, guys, 
what? Like, yeah, nap <laughs> and sit down on this mat and drink coffee and gossip with us. Like, I couldn't wrap my mind around it, sure. but because of the the new development of, of white flour, white rice, things that weren't um, originally to be found in the subsistence economy, there's not a... There's a lot of diabetes in oh, the Marshall Islands, so there's a lot of rest now, not a lot of exercise, but the diet has changed so drastically that there's a lot of illness there as well. Sure. And you know, it's, um, we can go into that too, but that would be a whole different podcast to talk about that. You can invite uh, me back. I will. I will. So one thing I would wonder too, and part of this, you know, maybe it's a little arrogant and ambitious of a topic, but part of this is a drive to have a small part in improving our practice as a collective profession mm -hmm. and you know of course diplomatically and all that but we all see some things in the field that we personally would wish would be a little different um, maybe caught up with the times maybe implemented better maybe a little bit more compassionate a little bit more effective a little bit more reactive mm -hmm. what do you see in the field of counseling or addiction in general that could be just a little bit different and improve Ooh. I know, it's a tough one. To... Um, well, let me say to you that I can talk about, you know, that pathologizing people because of their addiction um, or criminalizing, let's say instead, sure. criminalizing addiction um, just isn't working. Sure. And so, especially for drug court and what we see working as working as the treatment arm of an alternative court, but still a part of the criminal justice system, um, we know that treatment was not incorporated into the lives of our clients often until they became a part of the criminal justice system. Yeah. And so things that I think systemically are not up to date is treating addiction versus um, criminalizing addiction. And that's harmful. Sure. Jail does not, is not rehabilitative. Um, and for all those people who work in treatment programs in jails who are listening to this podcast, I do not mean that you're not doing good work. What I mean is that there's just not the resources and the funding. Um, those programs often are full and can only accept people in cycles. Um, so what I would say overall systemically is that we're we're criminalizing something that we in the field have identified as a a disease, not a um, not a an absence of like um, moral fortitude. Sure. It, yeah. It's it's like the back when they go back to atavistic studies and criminal uh, criminal justice and criminology and things like that we're still carrying over those old like Victorian ideas into our system and and so if I'm talking about a big system that's what I would say I wish needed to change uh, but that said on a on a smaller kind of micro level in the way that I supervise staff or I myself have to um, have to check my own ability to do my job on a regular basis Compassion plus boundaries. Um, sure. So for the folks who get into this field, um, I do not believe that everybody, you know, that, that common misconception that folks who are in mental health are all 
or who work in mental health are all you know wounded healers and they're all working out their own stuff by coming sure. to be in this field that said um, a lot of times folks who enter into um, substance abuse treatment this work what they're really looking to do is like save people sure um, and I think that's a really loving, caring, idealistic perspective, uh, but what it's essentially doing is skewing the, the power structure in that room. So I'm here to save you. And create means, dependence. Right, you need saving, and I'm the expert who's got the knowledge and the information who's, that, can, that can save you. Um, and that, that generally comes with, with less experience, and then the people who have been in this field longer kind of recognize that I've got a little information, but I am not the agent for change. That's the client, and forever and always will be. So the thing that I think really needs attention and good supervision and good consultation and support in our field is folks who still believe, like, well, I'm, you know, I'm here, I'm saving lives, and I'm really doing... Um, I'm changing the world because of, of this one group that I ran. And I guess what I'm thinking about more is where is the the respect for your client's capacity to make their own decisions? Change their own worlds. And up into and including experience their own consequences. Sure. You know, so we're not really, um, we're not helping people when we stand in the way of their consequences. Absolutely. You know, there are two, two points I want to uh, ask out of that. And the first one is sort of this, you talked about boundaries, and I know in the clinical community, typically when we throw the, the boundaries word out there, we mean make the client have boundaries. We don't, mm. all, you know, we don't always see it as we need to follow boundaries as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, and so to come back to what we're talking about, like how does change happen, um, we have to think a lot more about our choices in 2016 than we did, you know, even just like 200, 400 years ago. Certainly. Not even, you know, going, going further back than that. But what's really amazing, um, and one of the reasons that I love being a human so much and love how my brain works is because I don't just um, have the ability to think about, like, what are the options available to me. I have the, the power to think about my thinking. So, like, metacognition... So when my clients come in to say to me, you know, I'm really stuck, I'm really miserable, I don't know a different way, um, and I go, that's cool, that's the, what, no better place to start. If you sure. desire a different way and you have the power, this astonishing power to think about your own thinking, you can identify where you can, you can support change or even just come from a place of like nothing changes but you're nicer to yourself and you have a little more peace. Sure. Um, and so that's, you know, I use a lot of like mindfulness and even just like tenets of Buddhism in my, my private practice and in my work here. And in Buddhism they talk about it's like being the watcher. Sure. So you're the person who's experiencing your suffering, right? And then you're the person who's like, being really mean to yourself about whatever it was that got you into that situation. And then, but then there's this higher you that can see all of that and have compassion for, for that, that you who's suffering. And even that you who's like, oh, I messed up again. I can't believe I did this thing. Um, 
but it's tapping into that higher self that's always been there. Absolutely. Um, and then coming more from, from that place, which is, it's a heavy thing to think about, like how much, how much power and responsibility we actually do have in our own lives. Sure, and that, that's been a theme, like, you know, since the beginning of the interview, you're talking about how you work with people and that element of, like, well, do you want to quit? And, yeah. that, and it's not about, you know, you're not trying hard enough, so you don't really want it. Not that, like, high school football coach kind of mentality, mm-hmm. but it sounds like you're setting it, you're helping the clients set their own intention. Sure. Oh, know? without a question. Um, because then if somebody says, I don't want to stop um, doing exactly what I'm doing, and then I say, well, would you be interested in reducing the harm? around it. So the harm reduction model is very, very different for um, either substance abuse treatment or other risky behaviors that could lead someone, you know, lead sure. someone to um, jail time or consequences that they don't desire. Um, but it's so, so different than abstinence is the only way to be successful in recovery. And I use the recovery, the word recovery really broadly. I'm not talking Certainly. about just substance abuse counseling or um, Alcohol. I'm talking about relationships, risky sex behaviors, um, anger issues, or you know things like that. So more more behavioral stuff. Whenever you are recovering, healing, and growing in a different way, that's that's the word that I use. Um, but again, when I ask someone, but not just you know how willing are you to make a change, and they go, okay, I'm not. And I'm like, okay, great. So then how willing are you to accept whatever consequences come as a result of that? And they go, oh, well, but I don't want the consequences. Those are really miserable. Okay, so then that's where we're talking about the ambivalence, right? I'm not ready to change. I want to hold on to all the good things about what I receive from this behavior. But I also don't want to experience the consequences anymore because those are really painful. But if we can separate, again, like what do you want and what need is this meeting for you? Then we start looking at, okay, how might you be able to meet this need in a different way, in a less harmful way, in a more, um, in a more kind of self-loving, caring way, and then the consequences might be diminished. Certainly, and straddling the fence oftentimes seems to do more harm than just picking one direction or other with all of its benefits and consequences. I would agree with that, yeah. I th- but I think it's also like a process, and so somebody says, I'm not willing to stop smoking meth and I'm absolutely not willing to stop engaging in commercial sex work and I go alright no problem and they go but I'm terrified of getting HIV I go okay okay well then what's in your wheelhouse what are you willing to do to reduce the risk um, of, of contracting HIV so then there's the the psychoeducation that comes around transmission, but some people are so smart. Come on, they know yeah, a lot of this stuff certainly. already. Yeah. It's not about what you know or don't know, so that basic psychoeducation or just information, people are like, yeah, yeah. Sure, Dara would have cured drug addiction in fifth grade if that was true. The war on drugs would have worked, yeah. and it didn't. Um, R.I.P. Nancy Reagan. So on that topic, <laughs> you know, I even get nervous when I am about to ask this question, even though I'm the one asking it, but it's sort of like, Recovery, therapy, medical, mental health, all this stuff, it's, it, it's entrenched in dogmas, right? And how would you go about, um, if, you know, the world according to Beth, 
How would you go about addressing some of these entrenched dogmas that maybe have been in practice for like 100 plus years um, in our fields? Well, we are biologically hardwired to judge each other. That's another thing that like evolutionarily it served us at some point, which is, okay, uh, if I walk into a room, consciously or unconsciously, I'm ranking myself. Oh, yeah. um, Yeah. Who's... Who's physically powerful? Who seems like the leader in the room? Who, you know? And we're smart enough to know that, like, we don't have to do that as much because we're safe, but we're still hardwired to do it. So that, even that, like, those judgmental, you know, dogmas that we've all, um, we have these kind of ideas of how the world is supposed to work. Um, But again, like, you... If you own that reality and own that impulse that, okay, I want to create this substance abuse treatment facility based on what I think people need because I am, um, I'm so smart and I got this degree, um, but I'm still essentially, um, it's limiting because I can't consider all of the possible perspectives and um, treatment modalities. I can't, I can't do all of that. And so the world, according to me, that's, that's funny. The only thing, because even I am saying in this moment, like what I wish for is that we could dismantle um, this, this part of our, our minds and this part of our biological makeup that has us judging ourselves based on other people. Sure. And so where we fit in the rank and file. Um, So I guess the only thing that I I would wish for is I'm so glad I get a chance to use this quote. Yes. So I was listening to a podcast about uh, some of this stuff just recently, and the the quote was, I mean, the 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 speaker was talking about things that are unconscious, what are in your unconscious mind, and so much of our behavior is driven by that, and. Carl Jung said, we have to make the unconscious conscious because until we do, it will direct our lives and we will call it fate. Sure, and certainly that navigation intention piece, that's right. been the theme of the interview. And so if I had, if, if one of my wishes for the world could be met, um, it would not be an end to all suffering because it's just part of being human and those are some of the most powerful lessons that we learn, even though they're the most painful, come from experiencing our own consequences. I think the only thing I would really wish for is for people to um, look inwards and kind of dig a little bit deeper. So where does my, where does my need for, um, for judging a certain group of people based upon their mental health diagnosis? Or where does my, my need to make myself feel better by pushing somebody else down and so on and so forth? Because if you're talking about um, systems, because you say dogmas, and I just think like oppressive systems, because sure. that's that's how I feel about it. Or yes, extreme or like fixed practices that are unwilling to, yeah. Right, and so these fixed practices also come from this idea at some point of somebody saying, "I'm the expert. I have got the right way." Sure. Right? And so if I'm coming from that, um, <clears throat> if I'm coming from that perspective then my mind is closed to other possibilities. That's why we as professionals are required to get continuing education units. But if I'm doing it, if I'm doing lazy 
continuing education. I go get the ones that are free. I go get the ones that meet my benchmarks for supervision, sure. diagnosis, and ethics. And then I don't go and try to learn anything that makes me feel uncomfortable, yeah. but would help expand my my mind and also my ability to have compassion for something that I hadn't previously considered. Certainly. And one theme of all of this is when we talk about lighting up these primitive or primal chemical rewards, the vehicle to do that better than any other has been proven time and again to be some sort of challenge, right? Oh, yeah. Well, because we don't... Um, this One of my favorite poets, one of the lines in, in the poem is, your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. And that is pretty much the perfect closing to any kind of discussion. I, we're going to be hard-pressed to top that ever. So, Beth, we're almost out of time, but if you could tell people one last thing you'd want them to know at the end of this interview and how they can find you. Sure. So, the Internet is not just for... Um, using social media. You can find lots of really fascinating and cool things about your own mind, how it works, and also how to bring a little bit of peace to your own life. There's so much free stuff out there, and one of the places that I really like and use a lot is uh, www.wisebrain.org. Um, it's, it's the idea of incorporating some of uh, the things we've been talking about, like mindfulness, uh, some of those tenets of Buddhism, with um, the neuroscience of training your brain which sure. is super cool. Um, and so I guess what I would really want people to leave with is you have limitless potential in your own mind to direct your own path, which is really cool. How to find me? Um, you can find me on Psychology Today. If you were to do um, an internet search or go on Psychology Today and look for me uh, by my first and last name. First name's Elizabeth, last name's Pace, P-A-C-E. You could also find me on my private practice website with a photo of me with much longer hair, um, and that's www.dlpnola.com. Great. I'm going to have all these in the show notes, and thank you so much for uh, coming on today and giving us your time, Beth. Oh, it was my pleasure. I'd certainly come back and we could talk further about uh, nutrition and other things, if you so care to. Great. Thank you so much, Beth. Okay. Thank you for joining us today on the Therapy Evolve podcast. We at Paragon Wellness welcome your comments, questions, concerns, and suggestions for improvement. Feel free to contact us at paragoncounselor at gmail.com or drop us a comment at facebook.com slash paragonwellness. And always, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps us become noticed for better or for worse. While I am a licensed professional counselor, these podcasts are not meant to be taken as clinical intervention. If you are experiencing considerable emotional or lifestyle difficulty, it is highly encouraged that you contact a local wellness professional. Thanks again, guys. See you next week.